0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: This is CNN Breaking News.
2: Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with breaking news. The world has narrowly avoided a nuclear catastrophe. That was the message from the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations today. After Russian forces fired upon, fired upon Europe's largest nuclear power plant as they moved to capture it. Video shows bursts of gunfire erupting outside the nuclear plant in Godar, Ukraine, early this morning. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says that Russian tanks also fired on the nuclear plant, potentially putting millions of lives in danger. Fortunately, global nuclear experts say there is no indication of increased radiation levels at that site, at least for now. Today, we're also getting a sobering look at the impact of Vladimir Putin's war on innocent Ukrainian civilians. This new video shows the aftermath of a Russian strike on the Ukrainian town of Chernihiv, where local officials say a residential apartment building was hit by Russian munitions, killing at least 33 Ukrainians. The individual who recorded this stumbled upon a number of dead bodies just moments later. We're not going to show you that video. And this is what is left of a village outside of the capital of Kiev. Ukraine state emergency services say a Russian strike hit several residential homes there, killing at least five people, including Three Ukrainian children. We do not know how many innocent Ukrainian civilians have been killed since Russia began this unprovoked war on its neighboring sovereign nation. More than two days ago, the government of Ukraine said that Russian forces had killed more than 2,000 Ukrainian civilians, not including members of the Ukrainian military. More than 2,000. Our team of reporters is spread out across Ukraine. Covering this story as only CNN can. We're going to start with CNN's Clarissa Ward, who is live in the capital of Kiev. And Clarissa, there have been large explosions on the outskirts of Kiev today. What is the latest you know in the fight for northern Ukraine?
3: That's right, Jake. We have been hearing a large amount of bombardment today, more uh, than we had on previous days. Unclear if that's because the weather has cleared up, the skies are clearer, making it easier for uh, bombing campaigns to take place. Uh, We heard one particularly large one to the west of the city. Most of the fighting now concentrated in the west and the northwest of the city. The worst images, though, that we're seeing near Kiev are coming from a, a, a town called Bordyanka, uh, just outside of Kiev. And truly uh, horrifying images showing a dramatic aftermath of some kind of aerial bombardment, what appears to be aerial bombardment. An entire apartment building has just been completely decimated, gutted, uh, hollowed out. And we are now learning from Ukrainian emergency authorities that they believe up to 100 people may be trapped in the rubble Of that apartment building. What they're saying, though, Jake, is that it's impossible to get a precise number because emergency services cannot get proper access to Borodyanka because there continues to be such heavy shelling in and around that neighborhood. We also heard something a little bit different today, uh, which was a village to the southwest of Kiev coming under fire. Now, this is interesting and strategically important because it's the first time that we've heard uh, concerted bombardment to the southwest of the city. And of course, we know the Russians have been largely pushing down from the north, but this might indicate that they are trying uh, to push further to fully encircle the city. And the last thing I wanted to mention as well, Jake, you showed that video uh, of the extraordinary devastation, the aftermath, and the moments after that massive strike on the town of Cherniv. A- and what you can hear in that video, a man screams aptieka, which means it was a pharmacy, it was just a drugstore. And then you can hear a woman shrieking over and over again, dieti, dieti, which means children, children, just giving you a sense that civilians oh, are man. absolutely being killed in much larger numbers uh, than we had previously seen in this conflict. And when you see those apartment buildings and you know who lives in normal apartment buildings like that. And you can hear that woman shrieking. I mean, it's truly bone-chilling, haunting sound. You realize the toll that this is taking on civilians. We don't have exact numbers, Jake. As you mentioned, but certainly it's a very grim picture and getting uglier every day. And the fear is that as President Vladimir Putin feels that his campaign is not going uh, as perhaps they would have liked, not moving as quickly, and uh, that there may be then more indiscriminate targeting, more targeting of civilian infrastructure, Jake.
2: All right, Clarissa Ward, please stay safe. Let's go further south in Ukraine now to CNN's Sam Kiley who is following the latest developments at this nuclear power plant that was attacked by the Russians. Sam, what is happening
4: at the plant now? What are the biggest concerns moving forward? Well, Jake, I'm in uh, Dnipro, uh, which is about uh, 100 miles or so north of uh, Zaporizhia, close to the, the main town close to that uh, nuclear power station that was captured yesterday by Russian forces. Russian forces who were accused by the Ukrainian government, and there is some video evidence to support their claims that was attacked with heavy weapons not merely with small arms during an assault but heavy weapons, possibly even a rocket or tanks they claim the Ukrainians uh, as part of the Russian effort to take over the sec- the largest nuclear power plant in the whole of Europe the, the area that came under attack Jake was not directly part of the plant itself it was a training area uh, but experts have pointed out this is extremely dangerous. Act in and of itself, because, of course, not only are there a number of reactors there, but there's also storage of uh, uh, disused, no longer used rods that are still highly uh, radioactive. Now, this has caused a consternation at the United Nations with the U.S. ambassador bitterly criticizing the Russians, the Russian ambassador uh, arguing back that the that the plant had been seized, he said, to protect it from Ukrainian terrorists, a quite extraordinary claim in the context and this Jake has also resulted in what anecdotally would appear to be a serious uh, exodus of people uh, not only from Zaporizhia which is very close to the nuclear power station but here in Dnipro we were driving in earlier on today and there were enormous columns of cars just vast numbers of people hitting the road a completely empty road heading east but a completely rammed Road heading west, and believe you me, it's a very I've now driven almost the length, the width of this country twice. I've not seen cues uh, of that scale before because, of course, the idea that you could attack a nuclear power station is deeply resonant in this country that already endured the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. Now, in Chernobyl and in the nuclear power station near Zaporizhzhye, the Russians are now in control they are saying that they are keeping the workers there, but in in Chernobyl and in Zaporizhzhia, they're not allowing the workers there to change shifts. So you've now got exhausted nuclear engineers trying to keep the lid on a major nuclear power plant. It's one thing uh, in Chernobyl where they're simply managing the maintenance of uh, the post-disaster in Chernobyl. This is a massive, active power-generating nuclear power plant the Russians claim they're bringing in experts, but the Ukrainians are saying no new experts are being brought in, and their people are essentially being held hostage while they continue to maintain that plant. It's extremely uh, worrying, and this has caused consternation right across the world, Jake. Worrying indeed.
2: Sam Kiley in Dnipro, Ukraine, thank you so much. Let's talk about this issue with the nuclear reactor. Joining us now to discuss is Jill Ruby. She's the United States Undersecretary for Nuclear Security at the U.S. Department Uh, of energy. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Can you explain to our viewers who might not be fully versed in nuclear energy, what is the importance of a nuclear power plant of this size?
5: Well, this power plant uh, is the largest nuclear power plant in Europe and provides a significant amount of the electricity uh, to the Ukrainian
6: people.
2: So Ukraine's foreign minister warned that if this plan blows up. Uh, And certainly people were worried about that while it was being, uh, it was under attack by the Russians, including by Russian tanks, according to the prime minister. If it blows up, it will be 10 times larger than the Chernobyl disaster, which also took place in what is now known as Ukraine. Is that a fair comparison? And is that still a risk at this point?
5: Well, let me say two things about this. Uh, It, it, it is not. Ne- it's not necessarily a fair comparison in the sense that it would depend on what was, uh, what happened exactly at the plant. Uh, last night there was never a threat of a meltdown of the power plant, and so there was never a threat of that level of radiation leakage. These power plants are designed to withstand significant, uh, you know, a jet. Uh, flying into them so what we saw last night was Russian forces using uh, small arms as far as we could tell to take over the power plant uh, and creating a fire at one point in an administrative building but never a threat uh, to to a radiation leak of any type and our radiation sensors there the Ukrainian sensors there We're reporting background level radiation at all times during, you know, the emergency situation last night.
2: Well, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, said the world averted a nuclear disaster. Do you disagree?
5: No. Well, look, it is a very bad idea to militarily take over a nuclear power plant. And we strongly condemn Russia for fighting near a nuclear power plant. Uh, but in this particular situation, there was never a, th- a threat of a nuclear disaster. But clearly, things could get out of hand quickly. And we, you know, I agree with the uh, ambassador that things like this should not be occurring. And we, we strongly condemn them. But I also want to say we were never near the point of a, of a nuclear catastrophe last night.
2: Let's talk about going forward. How much leverage does Russia, does Putin have over other countries in Europe right now, given that it controls this nuclear power plant that provides electricity to millions of people?
5: Yeah, we, this power plant is providing, uh, has provided electricity to a lot of people in Ukraine, not significant uh, outside of Ukraine. Uh, and, it, you know, I'm happy to report, it looks like while they took, uh, three reactors were down, uh, yes, you know, in before the, uh, the, the takeover of the plant, uh, two react, of the three remaining reactors, two were brought down by the Ukrainian operators, which was a, a very good move on their part. And one was decreased in power to maintain grid stability. At this point, it looks like the Ukrainians are bringing back one of the reactors uh, to restore more power generation to to the Ukrainian people. Uh, so it, it appears at this point that uh, the reactors that that there's enough stability that they feel like they can bring another uh, reactor back up.
2: I just want to um, ask you one more follow-up because it does seem that you and the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations have different views of what happened this morning when the Russians took control uh, of uh, this nuclear power plant. I mean, th- she, she didn't just say that uh, a nuclear disaster could happen in the future, depending on what the Russians do with it. She said that the world averted nuclear disaster, and you're, you seem to be suggesting that that was hyperbole by the US ambassador to the United Nations. Um, why are you not seemingly on the same page?
5: Well, look, I, as I said, I don't disagree with the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations that fighting around a nuclear power plant could cause a nuclear catastrophe. The particular event that took place uh, last night, our time, uh, uh, was uh, the worst thing that happened was the takeover of the plant and a fire in administrative buildings. Escalation can occur very quickly, and it's a Again, uh, you know, bad idea, uh, to put it mildly, to fight around a nuclear power plant. So I agree that we should strongly condemn any military takeover of nuclear power plants because things could get out of control very quickly. I just also want to say that what we you know, watched closely last night, that it, we, we, we did not get to the brink uh, last night of a uh, uh, nuclear meltdown in any of these reactors.
2: Okay, thank you for clarifying that point, I appreciate it. The Undersecretary for Nuclear Security at the Department of Energy, Jill Ruby, thank you so much for your time, I appreciate it. You bet. He's the youngest member of Ukraine's parliament, now at 26 years old, he's taking up arms and taking to the streets of Ukraine to help stop Russia from invading his country. He's gonna join us live next, stay with us. Continuing with the world lead and a small victory for Ukraine in its fight against Russia's invasion of their country. A senior Pentagon official tells CNN today that Ukrainians have been able to at least stall that 40 mile long Russian convoy that was advancing towards the capital of Kyiv. Direct attacks on the convoy have helped. Ukrainians also blew up a bridge on Russia's path. The U.S. says that has kept the convoy about 15 miles north of the capital city for the time being. And it's not just the Ukrainian military taking up arms against Russia. I want to bring in Sviatoslav Yorosh at 26 years old. He is Ukraine's youngest member of parliament, and he is one of many young Ukrainians in the streets lately fighting for his country. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, sir. Um, so Russia's convoy stalled outside your city. That's, that's good news, but that convoy is still coming closer to your city. How much longer do you think Ukrainians, that that you and your cohorts can keep that convoy out of Kyiv?
7: Kyiv is a city of millions. so, So trying to take it is not an easy job for any convoy. And again, convoy being as long as it is, is still not enough to take over all the defenses, all the weaponry, all the... And all the defiance that we have here in Kiev and the fact that the president's here and the leadership of the countries here shows that we are not going to give up our capital that easily. And again, we've been using this time to prepare our defenses and mass. So we have plenty to throw at Russians going to the city.
2: On your level, on the on the ground level, what more do you and other Ukrainian fighters need in terms of supplies?
7: Everything and anything. The reality is nothing is enough. When fighting one of the world's biggest armies, nothing is enough. Because basically the reality is everything has been uh, upside down. Uh, there's medicine that people need, There are there's food that people need, there's v- various munitions that soldiers require, there's weaponry that the newly formed battalions of Detroit Defense ask for. So. Nothing is enough and I don't, uh, my my soldiering is very rudimentary. So I spend a good chunk of my time trying to bring supplies and resources to various parts of the defense force.
2: The U.S. government says that Russia's military has launched more than 500 missiles at Ukraine since the invasion started just a week ago. We've seen strikes hit clearly residential areas, including an apartment building yesterday yesterday. Are Ukrainians still able to find cover at this point? Is it too dangerous to leave at this point if if somebody wanted to flee the country?
7: Well, the reality is, again, it's our country. So, no matter how many missiles Russia throws at us, no matter how many soldiers it keeps sending, we will fight because, again, we have nowhere to go. This is our country. So, the reality is that those rockets uh, that hit all over the country, showing the Russian intention, is not just a part of the country or a chunk of the border, no, it is entire country, uh, shows to us the reality that we, again, we need to bring more to the table. The so Russians can finally feel that no matter how much they throw in, we will still keep fighting.
2: Sviatoslav, you've, you've been pick, you've been posting, uh, photographs of yourself armed, ready to help your country's fight. What has that fight been like for you? What have you encountered? Have you fired that gun?
7: Well, there've been skirmishes in the city, which I was a part of. There, there was plenty of incursions the Russians started into the town since the beginning of the, the full-scale invasion. Uh, every single one of them repulsed. Every one of them uh, pushed back. And basically, now the city is under martial law, and there are checkpoints everywhere to stop Russian diversion groups entering the city as they have time and time again. And the point is that we basically have finally taken control of the situation and defense of the city. It's heightened the level the Russians can't just enter the town easily. So those skirmishes are going further away and the big battle, uh, it's time is coming,
2: it seems. Sviatoslav, Yorash, thank you so much. Um, We wish you all the best, please stay in touch. We'd love to talk to you. More and more, uh, although I, I do hope uh, that there will be a quick peace. Thank you very much. Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, asked for their help, and now these men from other countries are answering Zelensky's call, showing up to fight for Ukraine, even if they don't have any military training. That's ahead. We're back with the world lead. There are growing fears that at any moment Russia could launch an amphibious assault on crucial Ukrainian port cities. In other words, using the ships it already has positioned off the coast to deliver Russian forces into the country for an attack. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh reports from the port city of Odessa, Ukraine now, where even the youngest residents are doing their part to try to prepare for the resistance. We want to warn you, some of the images we're about to show you are rather graphic. What they
8: once felt between their toes, now they want between them and the Russians. Sand from a yacht club's beach through these human chains sent to barricade Odessa's centre. In times past, this fun spot would have pleasured rich Russians too. Now, even if you're aged 11, you know to keep them out. I expect, she says, we will defend Odessa and everything will be okay." Then, a siren again. Off the coast are two Ukrainian naval ships, pacing worriedly. At any time, the Russian amphibious landing could hit. They clear out fast, although sure to strike a pose of defiance. Thank
1: you. Thank
8: you. Soon the alert clears and the church bells begin to sound friendly again as people thin out underground. But the youngest are the last to leave. And for Kira, aged three, these up and down days in the dark are too much. Nastia is bouncier. I've lost my train toy, she says. Oh, wait, it's over there. Parents who can only hope this happens so rarely, they never think of it as normal. Out east of here, the new Russian fake world that wants to envelop theirs is unfolding. These videos showing apparent aid trucks in the centre of Russian-occupied Kherson, Ukrainian officials warning they are part of a movie scene being concocted in which Russia will hand out aid to fix a crisis of its own making. Although at first contact, the PR operation doesn't appear to be going that well. The night before, locals filmed this civilian convoy arriving in town possibly the fake locals intended to provide public support for Russia's occupation. Theatre we've seen before in Crimea and Donbass. But in one village around Herson, a taste of how the future may look for Russian units out alone. These soldiers hunted, locals said, by actual local huntsmen. Now their radios, uniforms, maps, call signs, vehicles even are in the hands of people who know the land and have shown they can prosecute their grievances. Russia's wars are ugly, but here, in remote hamlets that won't back down, is where they'll get uglier still. Now, a day of intermittent, not the worst news for Ukrainian forces. You saw how the Russian PR operation in Kherson appeared to meet with hostile responses from the very people it was supposed to show were on side with the Russian occupation. Also, too, in Mykolaiv, the significant port city along the Black Sea coast as well. Uh, A local official there has said that they've had some success pushing Russian troops out from that city's centre and now fighting is on the outskirts. There were fears that that might actually fall at some point. But it is here, Odessa, where nerves are extremely fraught about what may occur. The notion of an amphibious landing here, something that's been, a, a, a frankly, a daily threat for about a week or so. People talk about persistently uh, something which could cause extraordinary loss here if it did indeed occur in a city which, as you saw there, is bracing and barricading itself in, Jake.
2: All right, Nick Payton Walsh in Odessa, Ukraine, thank you so much. Our next guest was a U.S. Air Force pilot, and now he's one of only two members of the entire Congress pushing for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Congressman Adam Kinzinger, Republican of Illinois, joins us next. And our world lead Secretary of State Antony Blinken this afternoon said that the United States... Regrets the tens of millions of Russian people are suffering because of the decisions made by Russian President Vladimir Putin. But, Blinken added that unless the Kremlin changes course, Russia will continue down the road of isolation and economic pain. With us now is Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois. He's a veteran of combat operations in Iraq and Afghanistan and a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, Congressman, thank you so much uh, for joining us. So Members of Congress have been getting briefings from the Biden administration Obviously, without divulging any classified information, what is your assessment of the situation in Ukraine now more than a week into the war?
9: Well, I, I think it's going you know, better for the Ukrainians than uh, initially expected. I think President Zelensky with his uh, decision to stay and fight has made a lot, has made a lot to, to basically give the morale for the Ukrainians to fight. The Russian troops don't have morale right now. Um, But this is going to be a long slog. This is going to be really intense, obviously, against civilians, as we've seen. I think the administration has done a lot, frankly, to uh, make sure we're supplying, to make sure that we're uniting Europe. But this is just the beginning, I fear, of of a really bad war.
2: As far as we know, you are the only member of the House, and one of only two in the entire Congress, along with Senator, I think, Wicker, Uh, advocating for NATO and the U.S. to enforce a no-fly zone over the skies of Ukraine. You're a former Air Force pilot. You know better than I do how much that could bring the United States into direct conflict with Russia. Given how focused Putin has been on this mission and how brazen he's been, why wouldn't a no-fly zone cause World War III?
9: Well, look, I, I think it's a good question. I think we have to first off recognize that, you know, we've been used to, as Americans, we've been blessed to not, you know, to always have a risk-free choice. We don't have risk-free choices right now in this. I mean, even with what we saw with the scare with the nuclear plant, we came uh, frankly cro- close to a huge tragedy. So that said, I see as this develops, as this gets worse, as the situation continues to decline, I fear that then we will have to take broader military action, particularly if there's some massive tragedy. And and after we see more and more pictures come out, look, I know that it's frightening the idea of a no-fly zone. And I do recognize there is risk with it. And I think short of it, we need to continue to send Stinger missiles and everything else. Uh, But that said, if Vladimir Putin really is going to use nuclear weapons against the West and NATO. Keep in mind, this was the old Soviet Union playbook to always threaten it. And it also shows you that if Vladimir Putin's willing to threaten it, it's the one thing he fears. But if he's really going to do that, he would use them against Ukraine. I mean, the reality is, I think we're going to be forced to intervene sooner or later. I hope not. I think this is the cleanest and easiest thing to save Ukrainian lives and send a message to push Russia back further and, and deny that airspace to them
2: why do you think other staunch advocates for Ukraine such as congresswoman Liz Cheney or, or Senator Marco Rubio aren't with you on this call for a no-fly zone
9: no, look it's a, it's a tough decision it's a tough call I mean and again, there always is a risk of escalation. The difference is I fear that that risk of escalation is happening regardless it's going to continue. To get bigger and bigger. And uh, so look, I, you know, I was also the first member of Congress to call for bombing ISIS. And I was told that that was certainly going to start uh, another large Iraqi war. Six months later, we're bombing ISIS. So I hope I'm wrong, especially if we don't end up doing the no-fly zone. Uh, but I do fear that I'm not. And so we, in, in the short of that, I think whether sending drones, giving Ukraine drones to use as the Turkish drones have been used so effectively, more Stinger missiles, that should be done in the near term for sure.
2: NATO says that Russian forces are using cluster bombs. Uh, The Russians attacked with military force, a nuclear power plant overnight. Russia continues to target civilian apartments. There have been too many civilians who have died for this to be an errant missile. there are global calls for the International Criminal Court to pursue Vladimir Putin for war crimes. Uh, do you think that should happen? And, and would that make a difference?
9: I, yeah, absolutely, it has to happen. I mean, we have to have these standards and, uh, and it's, there's no doubt that Putin is a war criminal. I'm not sure he necessarily feel, fears that threat. I think uh, he's you know, content right now being isolated in the middle of Russia. Obviously, he has you know, not traveled in a while. Uh, we, we, we don't understand his mental state. But I think for the sake of humanity and for the sake of standards, we have to pursue this. There's no doubt. And again, I fear, Jake, that as time goes on, as every day that goes on, we're going to see more and more war crimes occur uh, ordered by Vladimir Putin. And I certainly hope that doesn't include thermobaric bombs, uh, et cetera.
2: You're also on the January 6th uh, Select House Committee, um, so I want to ask you about that court filing this week from the committee indicating that former President Trump, uh, in your committee's view, may have been part of a criminal conspiracy. Obviously, you don't have the powers to charge the president. Um, Is the committee going to make a criminal referral to the Justice Department?
9: Well, I, I can't answer that, but what I can say is we were asked if there is a fraud and crime exemption to the attorney-client privilege between
2: first wow. off we're, we're, uh, We lost uh, Congressman Kinsinger there in the, in the uh, era of Zoom. Um, Congressman Kinsinger, thank you so much. We'll, we'll have you back soon. Coming up, they are barely equipped and they do not really have a plan, but that is not stopping some foreign fighters going to Ukraine to help them against the Russians. Stay with us. Continuing with our world lead, the global reactions to Vladimir Putin's outrageous and deadly invasion of Ukraine does not just involve condemnations from diplomats and international leaders. Some people, regular people, are, are literally taking matters into their own hands. They're flying to Ukraine to join the fight. CNN's Sarah Seidner is along the Polish-Ukrainian border and spoke with some of those heading into harm's way.
10: At the Pesemyshe-Poland train station, where the world's newest refugees are flooding in, we spot several men dressed in military gear, walking with purpose out into the cold, while most everyone else is trying to come in. We wondered who these men are who can only speak English and are itching to get to the border with Ukraine. They agree to talk to us, but first names only. And they ask us for help finding a ride to the border, 20 minutes drive away. Can you tell me what it is you are doing here in Poland, very close to the border with Ukraine?
11: Just trying to help uh, protect freedom. Uh, Simple as that.
10: What is your biggest concern? You're, You're also here... Are you going in? How many people? What's your biggest concern? Um, And where are you going?
12: Um, We don't really know right now.
10: There are six men total. They say they are strangers who met here in Poland. Mike is from Clearwater, Florida. AJ is from South Dakota. Matt is from Nottingham, England. What does this remind you of, this time
4: in history? 1936, when fascism rose in Spain, a lot of people went over, but not enough if we'd have crossed fascism in 1936, we could have avoided 1939. That's what this feels like. If we don't stop it now, it's going to be our kids fighting this fight.
10: They all came for one purpose, to fight for Ukraine. Most of these men say they are veterans of war. But Matt makes clear he has no military experience. But... They say they all left once they saw the brutal attack on Ukrainian citizens, jumping into action. A day before, President Zelensky called for more foreign fighters to join him in the fight against Russia.
7: Україна вже зустрічає іноземних добровольців, які йдуть в нашу державу. Перші з 16 тисяч вони їдуть захищати свободу, захищати життя
11: для нас, для всіх.
10: You're going in without a plan. Why?
11: Those people also have family and uh, friends and, uh, you know, somebody's got to stand up for them. And, uh, you know, it's it's not just the U.S., it's not just Britain, it's the whole world's coming together.
10: It's 3 a.m. with no plan, no one to pick them up on the Ukrainian side of the border and little equipment. Some don't even have a heavy jacket and below freezing temperatures. They jump in a taxi, head for the border and disappear into the night. And they weren't the only ones. This French-Canadian, who goes by the nom de guerre, Wally, says he received a call from a friend asking for help in Ukraine. I'm a veteran, but
13: I'm I'm programming, right? So uh, last Friday, my my friend who was in the jeep, he called me and said, "Okay, we really need you because you're the next sniper, and uh,
10: can you join? I said, yeah, okay, I'll do it. They and the other foreign men all heading into war without the might of their country's military. To back them up. I mean, you guys are going into war without a huge plan. What's your worry? Not getting there. Their biggest worry is not being able to get into the war. The biggest worry for thousands and thousands of people is not being able to get away from the war, Jake.
2: Sarah Seidner, near the Polish-Ukrainian border, thank you so much for that report. They opened their doors to give others a safe place to escape the Russian attack. Then their village was leveled by Russian strikes. A horrifying look at the human devastation Putin is causing. That's next. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome back to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Russian President Vladimir Putin's gruesome war on Ukraine continues into its ninth day. More than 500 Russian missiles have been launched into Ukraine since the invasion began last week, according to a senior Pentagon official. Thousands of civilians, innocent Ukrainian civilians, have been killed, according to the Ukrainian government. And now Russian forces are occupying Europe's largest nuclear power plant after reports of a Russian military attack emerged early this morning, and a fire broke out. At one point, the company that runs the nuclear plant said its workers were operating the facility at gunpoint, but thankfully, experts say no security or safety systems have been compromised. The U.S. Embassy in Ukraine called the attack a war crime on Twitter, but CNN is learning that the State Department does not want other U.S. embassies in Europe to retweet that message. Now Ukraine's president Volodymyr Zelensky is urging European leaders to, quote, wake up now, as more videos show the horrific aftermath of Russian strikes on key Ukrainian cities, strikes murdering, slaughtering Ukrainian civilians. Let's get right to CNN's Matthew Chance, who's live in the capital of Kiev. Matthew, Ukrainian officials say that a Russian strike hit several homes in a village outside Kiev. At least five people were killed, including children. What can you tell us?
11: Yeah, th- three of those five people were children. Um, the interesting thing is that this village is to the southwest of Kiev. Um, and, and we've not seen significant Russian attacks uh, taking place as yet in that part of the city. And so it, it kind of uh, talks to that idea that as we're seeing the majority of the attacks in the north of the city, in the northwest of the city, now it's moving down to the south as well. And so it, it just shows you, it illustrates that strategy that the Russians are pursuing to totally encircle Kiev, the capital, and to, to cut it off and eventually, presumably, to take it. And so we are looking very closely to see what else happens in those southern areas of the city. I mentioned that the majority of the attacks over the course of the past 24 hours have been taking place in the northwest of the city, around Gostomol. Gostomol's that place, Jake, you may remember where I approached the Russian forces when they first landed as a strategic airbase there. Well, since that time, there's been a lot of toing and froing counterattacks by Ukrainian forces, Um, unclear who controls which part of which territory and those outskirts of of the Ukrainian capital. But the latest information that we've had within the past few minutes, Ukrainian security services say that Russian forces are holding about 40 civilians in a building in that region, um, uh, holding them as hostages is what the uh, is what the Ukrainian uh, security forces are, are saying. So it's obviously a very fluid situation. And again, there seems to be some standoff with civilians caught in the middle between the two warring, uh, warring sides, Jake.
5: And
2: hey Matthew, you've also been trying to access subways and basements where many Ukrainians are living in shelter. H- have you been able to get in there?
11: Yeah, I, I went in there tonight, uh, actually, I went to um, a, a couple of shelters in the centre of Kiev. Uh, one of them deep in a subway station. It was the deepest subway station I've ever been to. The, the you know the escalator went down and down forever into the depths uh, of of the city. Uh, and once you got there, there were you know there's not fierce shelling at the moment taking place in central Kiev, uh, but there were still a couple of hundred people down there. Um, you know some of them getting food and food and tea. And bread being distributed by sort of uh, aid workers, I suppose, people assisting the locals there. People absolutely terrified. Some of them have brought their children. I asked them, why, why are you here? And they said, look, we're just, it's just safer to be here. It's not any bombing happening above us right now, but it's just safer because people are genuinely scared. The other important thing uh, what I did tonight is I went to a train station in the centre of town. And that is really a hive of activity because the central train station in this city was absolutely packed with people crowding onto trains, trying to take any transport they can to the west of Kiev. They want to go west. They're going to the west of the country. They're going to Poland just to get out of harm's way. And they're taking their families with them, Jake.
2: Matthew Chance reporting from Kiev. Thank you so much. Please stay safe. Back in the United States, U.S. officials are urging Russia to cease its military activities in the area. Officials insist they are supporting Ukraine with intelligence sharing at a, quote, frenetic pace. Let's discuss with CNN's Pentagon correspondent, Oren Lieberman, and CNN reporter Katie Bo Lillis. Oren, let me start with you. The U.S. and Russia have established a phone line of sorts so the two sides can notify each other quickly of any potential operations that might be happening in the region. Uh, This seems like a step in the right direction, maybe, but will it yield any results when it comes to getting the Russians to get out of Ukraine? Jake, I don't think that's the goal or, or even the potential ability or capability
1: of such a phone line. It's really purely a deconfliction mechanism because the skies over Ukraine are contested between, of course, the invading Russian Air Force and the Ukrainian Air Force. And right next to that, to the west of Ukraine, over several NATO countries, the U.S. Air Force is operating as are NATO countries. And the U.S. has made it clear it does not want any sort of encounter that could lead to a confrontation That could lead to an escalation between U.S. forces and Russian forces. And at least so far, it seems that that's the goal of Russian forces as well. The U.S. was looking to set up a sort of uh, deconfliction mechanism with Russia. The U.S. and Russia have that over Syria. But as Russia invaded Ukraine, such a line was not in place until just a few days ago. On March 1st, a senior defense official says that was set up. It has been tested. It operates between U.S. European Command and the Russian Ministry of Defense at a staff level, so this isn't at the highest levels there of officials in the military. It was tested, it worked, the Russian answered, but we don't have a clear sense yet if it's been used yet for deconfliction to keep the sides away from each other or under what circumstances it would be used. It is certainly a good thing if your goal is to avoid these two encountering each other, to have this in place, how often it's used. We will certainly try to get a better sense of that, but
2: I think it's tough to imagine this in and of itself leads to some sort of breakthrough there. All right, Oren, thank you. Katie Bowe, earlier this week I spoke with Republican Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska. He's on the Senate Intelligence Committee. He said the U.S. government is not sharing intelligence with Ukrainians at a fast enough, real-time speed. U.S. officials have now responded to this. What are they saying?
14: Yeah, Jake, U.S. officials that we spoke to pushed back pretty strongly on any suggestion that they are either not providing enough intelligence to the Ukrainians or that it's not getting there fast enough. U.S. officials told us that the U.S. is sharing intelligence on Russian troop positioning and Russian troop movements. They're sharing intercepted communications, detailing Russian military planning. Officials say they've set up multiple channels for this information to get to the Ukrainians, including building a secure portal where the United States can put information, sort of post information, and then the Ukrainians can kind of pull it down securely on their side. Officials also say that this information, that this intelligence is getting to the Ukrainians quickly, in some cases, according to one source that we spoke to, as quickly as within 30 minutes to an hour of the United States itself receiving the information.
2: But Katie Bo, there are some limitations on on what the U.S. is sharing, I would imagine.
14: Yes, there are. So the U.S. is downgrading this intelligence, right? So it's scrubbing it for sensitive sources and methods. And this is a big concern for the United States right now because getting any kind of secure communication lines Into Kyiv right now, into anywhere in Ukraine in the middle of an active shooting war with Russia is incredibly difficult. Obviously, the United States doesn't want Russia to know what it knows or even how it knows it. So that downgrading process does take some time. And then there's also a practical limitation here, Jake. Um, Some Republican lawmakers have said that they would like to see the Ukrainians get so-called targeting intelligence, the kind of exquisite live motion video that we saw the United States be able to use so effectively in campaigns in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria. Um, The problem, Jake, is that that kind of intelligence comes from drones. And by all accounts, our sources tell us the United States is not running the same kind of 24-7 drone coverage in Ukraine, a contested airspace, uh, that it was in in places where the United States had uncontested air su- superiority and, of course, was itself, in fact, a party to to the conflict. And so, you know, at, at the end of the day, um, or in other words, like the, the kind of intelligence that some of these Republican lawmakers are asking for uh, might not be something that the United States even has to give, Jake.
2: All right, Katie Bouloulos, Oren Lieberman, thanks to both of you, really appreciate it. Let's discuss all of this and more with Democratic Congresswoman Chrissy Houlihan of Pennsylvania. She's an Air Force veteran and a member of the House Armed Services Committee and the Foreign Affairs Committee. Her her father was also born in in Lviv, Ukraine, I should note. Uh, Congresswoman, uh, I want to get your reaction to the deconfliction communications line that's been set up between the U.S. military and their Russian counterparts. Is this just to make sure that the Russians don't quote-unquote accidentally kill any Americans, or could it lead to something greater?
15: Uh, thank you for having me, and I would have to agree with your prior guest that my understanding of the traditional use for those sorts of lines is for deconfliction mostly, largely. And so while I would be, it would be optimistic to hope for something larger than that, I think it's largely to make sure that we don't get in each other's way and that we're very, very clear with our intentions directly with one another.
2: The U.S. Embassy in Ukraine said that Putin's attack on Ukraine's nuclear power plant overnight, the largest one in Europe, is in fact a war crime. Is that how you see it? And would you like to hear the president call it a war crime?
15: So, I mean, I live here in Pennsylvania, and if you've been around Pennsylvania, you know that we have an interesting history with nuclear power ourselves. We have just down the road from my district, we have the nuclear power plant in Limerick, and we, of course, have the heritage of Three Mile Island so we need to be uh, very cautious, and as, a, as a, a commonwealth, we are very cautious about nuclear energy, and it is scary what has happened. I don't know necessarily that I'm looking for our president to call this a war crime, but I think we all should be pretty alarmed by what it would appear that Putin is uh, capable and willing to do. Uh, it seems as though he's been pretty, uh, pretty much lying about what has transpired there on the ground at that nuclear plant, and I think we should be alarmed at that, at that uh, propensity of his.
2: Yeah, I remember the Three Mile Island meltdown uh, as, a, as a Pennsylvanian. Um, today, you formally requested uh, that President Biden discontinue the United States purchasing Russian fuel, Russian petroleum. The White House says that they're not going to do that. There isn't strategic interest in reducing the global supply of energy. And they note that it would, of course, raise gas prices for Americans here in the U.S., and which are already going up. I think it went up 11 cents just yesterday. Uh, What do you tell your constituents uh, when gas prices rise and and are you not concerned uh, about that uh, if we were to cut off all Russian oil imports?
15: Jake, of course, I'm enormously concerned and I did lead a letter to the White House, a bipartisan letter asking the White House to reconsider on their decision not to divorce the United States from Russian oil and gas supplies. I think it's the right thing to do for a variety of different reasons. By uh, funding the, the war, by our purchasing of Russian oil and gas, we are complicit in what's happening to the Ukrainian people. And I know the American people to be an empathetic people who understand that they can participate uh, by, by understanding that they can contribute, uh, possibly uh, with, their, with their wallets, frankly. But I also understand that the administration really hasn't explored, in my opinion, all the other options that they have to be able to lower uh, gas prices as well and to be able to uh, dual source other other places for us to get that energy supply from. We've been increasing our supply from Canada. A lot of the oil rigs that have been dormant for a long time have been increasing their supply. And so I'm not necessarily willing to, to see that we will see that increase in gas prices, but I am very interested in, I know bipartisanally we are collectively very interested in asking the president and his administration to reconsider.
2: Do you think it's hypocritical of the United States to be imposing all these economic sanctions on Russia and urging companies to take their businesses out of Russia while we take hundreds of millions of gallons uh, in petroleum uh, from Russia. Uh, I mean, is that hypocrisy?
15: I think it's an incomplete solution. I think we've levied some of the most um, d- draconian uh, measures on the, on the Russia at this point in time to punish them for Putin's actions. And it sort of is inexplicable that one of those is not a separating ourselves from the Russian oil and gas supply.
2: There are two Republican lawmakers, which is not a lot of lawmakers, uh, pushing for a no-fly zone, Meeting NATO would, and the U.S., would, would prevent Russian planes from flying over Ukraine or carrying out airstrikes. The concern, obviously, I don't need to tell you, as an Air Force veteran, but the concern is that um, that would mean the United States would militarily uh, enter into uh, conflict with Russia, and potentially that could lead to an escalation, perhaps even to World War III. Here is what Ukrainian President Zelensky said about the no-fly zone issue yesterday.
16: How many arms and legs and heads, how many should be severed? So that you understand, now I'm asking for a no-fly zone. And if you don't have the strength to provide a no-fly zone, then give me planes. Would that not be fair?
2: At what point would you support a no-fly zone? And should we be giving the Ukrainians planes?
15: So the short answer is, at this time right now, I do not support a no-fly zone. Although I do respect Representative Kinziger and his His um, position. I don't think at this time that this is the right move for both the United States and all of our NATO allies to to exercise, because that is indeed uh, engaging in war with Russia directly. And that is something that I don't think that the American people are able and willing to tolerate at this point in time. I very much, however, do empathize with Zelensky, and you can hear it both in his voice and the voice of his translator as well, that he is very much asking for anything that can help his people and help his nation uh, survive. And so actually today, one of the other things that I called for from the administration was to consider aircraft being sent to uh, Ukraine as well. Specifically, I asked them to investigate A-10, which are um, anti-tank aircraft, And I recognize that there are some complications to that, and that's not necessarily something that's easy to ask for or to look into, but I'm asking the administration and anyone who's willing to listen, both publicly and privately, to make sure that we consider every single option that we have and that we leave nothing um, off the table.
2: Democratic Congresswoman Chrissy Houlihan from the Great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, thank you so much. Good to see you again.
15: Nice to see you too. Thank you.
2: They opened their homes to shelter Ukrainians trying to escape Russian strikes in one of the hardest hit cities and then the Russians came for their village. That story next. In our world lead, there were no clear military targets. None. Just a small village near the Russian border full of people offering shelter for their fellow Ukrainians running from the Russians. And now that village is leveled. And as ITN's Dan Rivers reports, there's no safety here, not even for children. We wanna warn you, some of the images you're about to see, thanks to the Russians, are graphic. At
13: first glance, it appears a peaceful sanctuary, which is why those bombed out of Kharkiv sought refuge here. But a closer look shows the village of Yakivlivka was anything but safe. It was devastated by what locals say were four Russian airstrikes, and this was the result. The body of Victor lies in front of the home where he perished. As firemen search for that of his wife, Oksana, still buried under its ruins. What we're seeing here is the true face of this Russian invasion. President Putin doesn't seem to care whether civilians are caught by his shells and rockets. He's not liberating this country. He's destroying it. There is no hearse for the bodies. One week on and this war has already robbed the dead of their dignity and left the living seething with fury.
11: Putin, Putin
13: you should die, he says. In Natasha's garden, they're sifting the rubble for anything worth salvaging. She was sheltering nine people in her home, including several young children. Their car had been shot as they ran the gauntlet from the city.
10: And
13: two children were here. He shows me where they were sleeping when the first missile hit. The shockwave ripped through every room, lacerating them all with glass. The children escaped without major injury
10: которые не понимают, которых нет информации в России, что здесь творится, и их детей тоже здесь убивают, их убивают здесь детей, они пушечное мясо, мы пушечное мясо, они пушечное мясо, ребята, надо в стране, в мире должен быть мир, люди должны жить, они разбирать завалы, мы же не должны разбирать завалы, где жить, как жить?
13: Across the street, a garden hewn apart by the impact. The blast so powerful it overturned cars. The crater so deep you could bury one inside it. People are left sifting through what's left without the support of any aid agencies, wondering what will come next. As the shelling continues to echo across this shattered community. There is no obvious military target here, just a village which tried to offer shelter to those in need.
2: Thank you to ITN's Dan Rivers reporting from outside Kharkiv for us. Is this the cost of doing business? Some of the biggest companies in the world staying silent when it comes to their operations in Russia. Stay with us. Welcome back in our world lead moments ago, Ukraine's president Volodymyr Zelensky condemned NATO's decision to rule out enforcing a no-fly zone over Ukraine. But today US Secretary of State Antony Blinken said that would only lead to a quote full-fledged war between the West and Russia. Let's get right to CNN's Natasha Bertrand in Brussels. She's traveling with Secretary of State Blinken. And, Natasha, uh, tell us more about what Zelensky had to
17: say. Well Zelensky had some very harsh words tonight for NATO and he really did not hold back here in response to those comments from Secretary Blinken and Secretary General of NATO Ian Stoltenberg saying that a NATO a no fly zone over Ukrainian skies is really not on the table right now. Zelensky says here, we believe that NATO countries have created a narrative that closing the skies over Ukraine would provoke Russia's direct aggression against NATO. This is the self hypnosis of those who are weak, insecure inside, despite the fact they possess weapons many times stronger than we have now this is a stark shift from president Zelensky. we've seen him kind of be careful when it comes to criticizing nato because of course he's been asking for these favors his country is in the middle of the war of a war he's been asking for a no-fly zone pleading even he has been asking for planes more fighter jets from nato countries that could potentially uh, shift the balance here in favor of ukraine He has not been getting favorable responses to any of that. NATO has been saying, no, we cannot get involved in a direct shooting war with the Russians, which is what they say would happen if they did try to enforce that no-fly zone uh, over Ukrainian skies. And so clearly we're seeing some kind of a shift here uh, from Zelensky getting deeply, deeply frustrated, given how aggressive and how brutal uh, the Russians have begun to be in their targeting of Ukrainian cities and civilians. Jake.
2: And, Natasha, uh, Secretary Blinken also pushed back against the calls to sanction Russian energy directly. Why? What did he have to say?
17: They don't want to roil the global energy markets too much, essentially. They said that uh, changing the kind of supply of global energy and oil and gas would not be in the United States' interest, and it would be very harmful to Europe. Sanctioning the energy sector would kind of uh, have catastrophic consequences for the global economy. That is what they're saying. They're saying that uh, canceling Nord Stream 2, that Russia-to-Germany gas pipeline, was a big victory, and that is something that was highly valued by Russia, and that is something that they believe will have big consequences for the Russian economy moving forward. But that sanctioning Russia's energy sector in and of itself uh, is probably not the best move at this point, and it very might well be a last resort. Um, We do know that the White House is considering cutting off oil exports, uh, imports from Russia. It is not a massive part of the U.S. uh, imports already for oil and gas. They don't import much from Russia as is, Uh, but it would be a symbolic move. And of course, the United States has been very reluctant to do anything unilaterally. They've been wanting to do it with allies. The allies, of course, very reluctant to do anything that might harm uh, the Europeans' ability to import that oil and gas, especially in winter. So right now, the the energy aspect of this does not seem to be very much uh, on the table, apart from uh, restricting those oil imports into the United States. Uh, But they they still say that all options here are on the table and things that we might not have imagined they would have imposed a couple weeks ago, they have been. So uh, they are not ruling anything out at this point, Jake.
2: All right, Natasha Bertrand traveling with the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, in Brussels. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. In the money lead today, more U.S. companies cut ties with the Kremlin. Google stopped advertising in Russia altogether. Microsoft suspended new product sales. FedEx stopped all services in Russia and in Belarus. But brands such as Marriott, McDonald's, Burger King, Pepsi, Coca-Cola, all have yet to say how or even if they'll respond to Putin's unprovoked invasion In Ukraine, let's discuss with CNN's Matt Egan. Matt, after a week of Putin's invasion in Ukraine, why are some of these companies staying in Russia when so many others have left and and pulled operations?
12: Well, Jake, as this war and its atrocities drag on, the public pressure on Western brands is only going to grow to cut ties with Russia and this corporate exodus from Russia has really been staggering. Companies from virtually every sector have left the country or at least paused relationship with Russia. Even big oil is cutting ties with Russia. Think about that for a minute. And yet some of these western brands are staying silent at least for now, at least publicly. And one of the reasons is because some of them have been in Russia for a long time. McDonald's has been there since 19 19- 90. Today, it has hundreds of locations. It's spent considerable amount of time building up its brand there. Also, this is not some small market. There's more than 140 million people that live in Russia. That is a very lucrative market for consumer brands. Pepsi has made more than $3 billion last year alone. Stellantis, the company that owns uh, Jeep and Chrysler... They're trying to draw a line between the people of Russia and the regime of Russia. And they're saying they don't want to hurt the workers. But again, Jake, the pressure is only going to grow on these companies to make a stand.
2: Might there be moral repercussions for appearing to put money first and not severing ties right now? Might uh, the brand names take a hit? I heard from a, a Ukrainian friend I have in that country who keeps railing to me against Burger King uh, and, uh, and, and McDonald's for staying there.
12: Jake, absolutely. I mean, the, the reputational risk here is massive. Uh, Jeff Sonnenfeld, the Yale professor known as the CEO whisperer, he told me he thinks that the companies that are staying in Russia are being very short-sighted because he said right now there's no other issue in the United States that unifies uh, people like Russia and the stand against this war right now. So there are some risks. And Sonnenfeld also pointed out that history was not very kind to the companies that continued to do business with Germany during World War II. Now, that's not a perfect analogy, but I think it gets the point across. I don't think that Vladimir Putin ever had a great brand in America, but right now it's, it's pretty toxic.
2: Big news here in the U.S. with the economy adding 678,000 jobs last month. That's the best month of job growth since July but is the U.S. job market is it back to pre-pandemic
12: levels yet? Well, Jake, this is a hot jobs market, but no, it is not fully recovered uh, the losses from COVID. The United States is still uh, 2.1 million jobs shy of where it was before the pandemic began. That is a lot of jobs, but you got to remember the economy lost 22 million jobs after this health crisis began. So there has been a ton of progress. One economist. Said this has been mind-boggling fast recovery. The unemployment rate is down to 3.8 percent, the lowest level of the pandemic era. Remember, it peaked, as you can see it on that chart, at nearly 15 percent in April of 2020, down to 3.8 percent now. All of this shows that the U.S. economy and the jobs market, in particular, entered the Russia-Ukraine crisis from a position of strength. The question is whether or not it's strong enough, Jake, to withstand this inflationary pressure, especially at the gas pump.
2: All right, Matt Egan, thanks so much. Appreciate it. These children were fighting to stay alive before war began, before Russia invaded. And now Russian strikes have forced these kids from their hospital beds. CNN is on the train with them as they head to safety. Stay with us. In our world lead, children so sick, they already spend most of their time in the hospital when Russia invaded and started bombing Ukraine, those children were forced to leave their hospital beds in Kharkiv and make their journey to a train that would then carry them to safety in Poland. CNN's Arwa Damon joined them.
16: A train speeds through the darkness and crosses the Ukrainian border into Poland. Most of these children are from hospices in and around Kharkiv. It had the best palliative care for children in Ukraine. Now, one of the area's most intensely bombarded. The carriage is filled with the sort of emotion that is too intense, too incomprehensible for words. But it is also filled with so much love. Love among strangers, seen in the tenderness of the touch of the medical team, the whispered words of, you are safe now. Love of a mother who will dig up superhuman strength just to keep her child safe.
18: Hi, Victoria. Hi. Oh, look at
16: that smile. Victoria, who has cerebral palsy, can't sit up. Her mother, Ira, doesn't know what to say. She has so much pain in her soul, her tears just won't stop. They had to get closer to the border with Poland before this humanitarian train could pick them up. Ira carried Victoria for three days, through the panic of others trying to flee, trains so packed she could not even put her down. Until now. Dr. Eugenia Shushkevich worked to bring the families together inside Ukraine to get on this train organized by the Polish government and Warsaw Central Clinical Hospital. It's a trip that could have killed any one of these children, even without a war. That reality had the medical team so understandably anxious, we were not permitted to film anything until the children were safely on board and stabilized.
13: How old
6: are
18: you,
4: Sophia? 5 Thank you.
16: While this train was heading towards safety, Ira heard that her town was bombed.
10: Papa, Моя мама, сестра, все, мама моя. Кто не берет трубки, утки идут и все. А больше говорит, что каждый понимает,
16: что
3: это
10: значит. Ира follows
16: quietly as Victoria is carried off the train. They are now away from their home that was filled with such love, a home and family that may no longer be. And Jake, now those children will be moving on to different hospices, some of them here in Warsaw, some of them in other parts of the country. But as you can imagine, for those mothers who you saw there, I mean, their heart, their mind is with everyone who's also been left behind in Ukraine.
2: Arwa, tell us what else this train uh, will be used for.
16: Well, they're hoping to be able to get more children out who are in dire medical condition just in the Kharkiv area alone. The doctors were telling us that there were a total of 200 uh, children in need of safer ground, safer space just to be able to survive all of this. And then, of course, you have preparations that are being made. With this train, with others that they'll eventually be getting online to try to begin to evacuate other injured as hospitals inside Ukraine or rather in preparation for hospitals inside Ukraine to potentially become uh, overwhelmed with numbers of civilian casualties. They're also uh, setting up hospital spaces here in Poland as well. So there is a sense that Poland is really trying to get ready for what everyone is fearing, and that is more civilian and also military casualties in this horrific war.
2: Arwa Damon in Warsaw, Poland, thank you so much for that important report. Coming up, it is the largest overnight spike in gas prices since Hurricane Katrina. Is there any relief in sight? That story is next. In our politics lead growing momentum urging President Biden to not only sanction Russian oil, but to ban it from the United States outright. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin and Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski are leading a bipartisan bill to do just that. The move could be punishing for Putin and also costly for the U.S. and economies around the world with gas getting even more expensive. Let's discuss With our panelists, Uh, Kristen, the national average price for gas hit $3.84 a gallon. That's a, a hike of 11 cents in just one day, 42 cents in the last month. How long are Americans going to be willing to pay more in exchange for this moral stance and national security stance of punishing Russia?
18: We know that cost of living, particularly cost of gas, have been huge issues for American voters going back months now, and President Biden's ratings on how he's handling the economy have taken a hit as a result. But at the same time, polls also show Americans pretty willing to engage in strong economic sanctions against Russia in a bipartisan way. So there may be a little bit of runway here for Biden to sort of weather the storm of these higher gas prices, because now Americans have someone to blame, Vladimir Putin. They can point to overseas in that sort of chaos and blame that for what's going on at the pump, rather than just looking to blame Biden and his policies.
2: Alencia, nearly 20 senators, Republicans and Democrats have signed on to this legislation to ban Russian oil from the U.S. Do you think uh, President Biden has enough support at home to put this kind of pressure on Putin that will also frustrate American voters?
6: I think he does have the support, as was just mentioned, this poll that Americans are somewhat understanding where this inflation is coming from at the gas pump. But it is interesting that this is all happening in the midterm year when. We've been talking about inflation. We've been talking about getting people back to work. We've been talking about the economic impact that this pandemic alone is already having on Americans. And so ideologically, so many people are supportive of these sanctions to uh, hopefully uh, push back on what Russia is doing right now. But eventually, Americans will feel it. And so this is a tightrope that the Biden administration is walking on. And I'm sure uh, that they are grateful that they have some bipartisan support. But it'll be interesting to see what happens in the coming weeks.
2: Uh, Kristen, today we learned that Vice President Kamala Harris will travel to Poland and Romania, U.S. allies, next week to show support uh, for them and support for Ukraine. Uh, What signal do you think the Biden administration is trying to send by dispatching the vice president to the region?
18: I think they're trying to send a message that they are engaged in this. Because at the moment, to the extent that Americans are frustrated with what's happening in Ukraine and America's response to it, they tend to think we're not engaged or tough enough. Now, that doesn't mean that Americans want military action. Polls pretty consistently show they're not eager to have American boots on the ground in Ukraine. But sending the vice president sends a signal that we understand this is not just something that's happening on the other side of the Atlantic that doesn't affect us. So I'm assuming that the administration wants to be engaged and believes that this will be a way to turn the page from what's been a very challenging political last couple of months for them as well and put the administration in a new light.
2: Alencia, as President Biden weighs how to respond to Putin day by day, he does have this great economic news today, 678,000 jobs added. The U.S. is nearing pre-pandemic levels on employment and jobs. Once again, uh, of course, gas prices, inflation. Um, Do you think that that continues just to overshadow the job gains?
6: Unfortunately it does overshadow the job gains and you know it also gives rhetoric to uh, the Republicans who want to blame President Biden for everything that is impacting his administration's gains from the uh, pandemic as well as what is happening between Russia and Ukraine. But I do think the Biden administration as he did uh, President Biden did earlier in the week in his state of the union, yes, he came out very strong against what is happening Um, in in Russia and Ukraine and talking about America's position, but he also was talking about the gains. He was also talking about the fact that economically here, domestically, we are getting back to work and that that the American people can trust the policies that his administration is putting forward to hopefully alleviate some of what they are feeling in their pocketbooks.
2: And and Kristen, in Florida today, uh, Republican Governor Ron DeSantis uh, is set to uh, sign a bill uh, that will ban most abortions altogether uh, after 15 weeks of pregnancy, uh, no exceptions for rape, no exceptions for incest. It does allow exceptions for involving serious risk uh, to the pregnant woman and, and fatal fetal abnormalities. Florida had been the last state in the south with, with less restrictive abortion laws. Um, how much do the, the continued drumbeat of, of southern states and other states uh, passing these restrictive abortion laws? Uh, become an issue for voters in the years ahead, whether Republicans, uh, Democrats, people who support these new laws, people who oppose them?
18: I think a lot is going to depend on what happens with the Supreme Court this summer. I mean, Texas has passed a law that's far more restrictive than what you just described from Florida. And yet it did not seem, at least in any of the analysis that I've seen of Texas primary results from this week to have been a major issue. Um, Six weeks is something that consistently in polls, that's much earlier than most Americans' comfort level when it comes to banning abortion. And yet In Texas, the bigger issues there seem to be things around cost of living and border security. So I expect for the midterms that to to hold as well, unless the Supreme Court, when it's looking at Mississippi's law, which I believe is about the same uh, length of time, about 15 weeks of pregnancy like Florida's, if they change the precedent set by Roe versus Wade in that ruling, then that may elevate it to be a bigger issue in the midterms, but there's still a lot going on and a long way to go.
2: Kristen and Alencia, my thanks to you both. Have a great weekend. Thanks for joining us today. The legal fight just ended for the Boston Marathon bomber. That's next. In our national lead today, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the death sentence for Jahar Tsarnaev, one of the two brothers responsible for the 2013 terrorist attack at the Boston Marathon that killed three spectators and a police officer, and wounded numerous others. It's unclear if Tsarnaev will actually be put to death. There's currently a moratorium on all federal executions as the Biden administration evaluates the issue. Be sure to tune in this Sunday morning for a special edition of CNN State of the Union. We're live at both 9 a.m. and noon Eastern. We'll be talking to Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Florida Republican Senator Marco Rubio, and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, among others. Our coverage continues now. With Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room, I will see you Sunday morning.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599.